Hi, I'm Jana Panaritis, and you're listening to the AgeWise Podcast, where we give you strategies for aging well and wisely. And how do you do that when on top of scrambling to keep up with the demands of your own life, you're also caring for someone else in your life? Well, we're here to help. Each week, we hear from people just like you who share caregiving stories from the field, how you cope, what you've learned, and how care has changed your life. We also hear from professionals in the field of aging and people using media to address major health issues and challenge widespread assumptions about what it means to get older. So stick around for some straight talk on aging in all its unpredictable glory. According to the Alzheimer's Foundation of America, in the United States, someone is diagnosed with the disease every 67 seconds. We sometimes forget that when Alzheimer's strikes, the impact is felt by many people, not just the patient. Well, today's guest is one of those people. Her name is Tammy Reeves, and she's a pediatric and trauma nurse and the author of Bleeding Hearts, a true story of Alzheimer's, family, and the other woman. Tammy's candid memoir tells the story of a husband torn between love for his ailing wife and the need to move on. Tammy joins us today from Frankfurt, Germany, to talk about her experience and her book. Tammy Reeves, welcome to the AgeWise podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Before we get into the book, I'd love for you to put this in context for the listeners and get started with telling us a little bit about your upbringing. I know that both you and your f- former husband, who you met as a child, are children of deaf adults, also known as CODA. I learned a new acronym. So talk about your upbringing and what you called a conservative Christian family and your early lessons in caregiving. I think that the first lessons that I learned in caregiving was trying to protect my parents. I grew up in a time where um, there weren't so many services for the deaf, mm-hmm. and so CODAs, children of deaf adults, were often the liaison between the hearing and the deaf world for our parents. Mm -hmm. And being in that position, being the interpreter for my parents, in many situations, mortgages, the grocery store, whatever, you have a sense of protection. And because you know that you're different, you understand that. And so you have to develop a way to protect them. And I think that protecting people in that way makes you sort of a caregiver. And so that began very early on. And then my mother went to work when my youngest brother was a year old, and I was, um, I'm about seven years older than him. So at a very young age, I was taking care of my younger siblings when we got home from school. So I was always in this role of taking care of the family. Dinner, I had to have dinner on the table by the time my parents got home. So I was always in that light. That's just how things were. You know, my brothers and my sisters and I, we all became caregivers of each other and our parents. Mm -hmm. And tell us where you grew up. Well, I was born in Concord, but we moved um, to Texas when I was about uh, almost five years old. And so I grew up for the most part in West Texas. And then when I was 15, we moved to Colorado. Okay. I thought it was really interesting that you wrote that friendships are already in place for deaf families. Can you expand on that? It's a really interesting connection. Whenever you are in public and I see, if I see a a person struggling, a deaf person struggling because they can't communicate, I always step in and immediately they can tell that you're a CODA. The 
there's just an easiness about it. There's just, it's just second nature to us. Um, and I would liken that to probably someone who um, is bilingual, like with Spanish or anything else. Once right. you hear someone trying to interpret for you, you're going to be able to tell if they're the real deal or not. So it's kind of the same thing. But with CODAs, once you meet a fellow CODA, it doesn't matter where you are in the world. If, if you can speak the language, same language and communicate, then you are instant friends and there's silliness that goes with it and everybody feels like your family. It's, it's hard to explain, but there's a kinship there that is just very, very beautiful. Mm-hmm. It sounds like it. Very magical. It is. Uh, it is. Not, not that it's not challenging, not to not acknowledge that, right. but... So you were living in Colorado Springs with your then husband raising kids and working at the same time as your now husband, who you didn't know yet, was packing for Europe and you felt like something was missing in your marriage. So this gets to how the book is structured, which it really reads like fiction. It starts with Eric and Gay's story, complete with dialogue, and then you go back to how you and your husband met. I I can't remember the exact order. But I wonder if you could reflect on what was going on in your marriage early on and then what was going on for Eric and Gay, who was diagnosed with Alzheimer's. Sure. My ex-husband and I, we had known each other since we were children. My mother went to school at the deaf school Mm -hmm. with his parents. And so we grew up visiting from Texas. We'd drive to Colorado for vacations. They'd come down to Texas. So we were family friends, and the CODA, you know, we were all CODAs, so we all got along really well. Your mom went to school with his parents. Okay. I just wanted to clarify that. Yes. They all went to the deaf school together when my mom's family lived nearby Mm -hmm. in Colorado. Okay. And so they kept in touch via snail mail, but then we met them when I was six, and my ex-husband was eight, and that's how we met through our parents, and we were just family friends. We used to go camping all the time with them in Colorado. They'd come down for the 4th of July or whatever. So we had this relationship since we were children, but I always wanted to marry him. So when my family moved to Colorado when I was about 15, Tim and I were going steady via snail mail. We Mm -hmm. would write to each other. So then we got married out of high school. It wasn't that we didn't love each other because we did, but I think the issue is when you have premarital sex at a young age, you just think it's love. You think it's that kind of love. Mm-hmm. And I think there's a reason why people should be a little leery of falling or calling it love. You know? <laughs> so it, it, it's not that I didn't love him because I did. I loved Tim was his name. I, I loved him very much. But it just wasn't the same thing that I imagined my life should be. And we were growing in different ways because we were growing up in our marriage. Right. We were children when we got married. Mm -hmm. So we were growing up and wanted different things in our lives as we got older. And that just kind of made us drift apart. And when we ended our marriage, I'm not going to say there weren't tears and sadness, because there was, but we still remain friends. He just got married um, a couple of weeks ago to a beautiful woman that we have all sat down and had dinner with. You know, our our children, Mm -hmm. his now wife, my husband... So the divorce and our marriage ended in a beautiful way, if, if that can if that can happen. I mean, there were some struggles, especially for our children, but it just felt like that's the way it was going to happen because we were just too different. Mm-hmm. And then with Eric and Gay during this time, this is the time when he was over here as a civil service working for the same air base, and she was going through. But before they left, she was having some memory issues, you know, like forgetfulness and and things like that. And, 
Eric told me from day one when he met Gay, years before this, that she feared getting Alzheimer's because she saw what it did to her grandmother. Mm-hmm. And so it was strange to me that that was always a fear in the back of her mind. So I wondered if maybe she felt some symptoms early on or just was just so afraid. I'm, I'm not quite sure. But mm-hmm. when they get over here, her symptoms really exacerbated. And going to the base doctors, they just kept thinking she was depressed because she was away from her family, away from her children. Her sister-in-law said, you know, maybe it's menopause because that can cause, you know, depression. But then Eric finally got tired of not getting the right answers and asked to leave early and went home and within a few months had his di- had the diagnosis. So those were going on around the same time of each other. Mm-hmm. So just to make it clear for our listeners, Eric, who Tammy is now married to, was before she met him married to Gay who was diagnosed with Alzheimer's while he and Gay were still married, and she was 49 years old. As it is made clear in the book, uh, Eric and Gay moved back to Colorado. Eric was coming home two times a day to check in on his wife. Then they got some help, and then they reached a breaking point where um, Gay was moved to an Alzheimer's unit. But before that, I thought this was really touching how you wrote about this. His and Gay's daughter, Melanie, planned a huge family Christmas because she thought it might be the last Christmas that their mother would still be there, so to speak. But in 2005, you split with your husband. And then in 2007, you met Eric via an online dating service. So why don't you take us through that and talk about what it was like to date a man whose wife has Alzheimer's? Um, Yeah, when I first left my husband, I got onto a dating service. I got off the dating service because it seemed like every man I was meeting was a player. <laughs> so I was on there maybe a month or two. I don't remember exactly the amount of time, but I got off. But they still send you winks, you know, notifications that other people because they keep your profile up right. even though you're not a paid right. subscriber. And that was probably about March, April time frame. And in September, I got a wink from Eric. I didn't like his profile picture, but I was a little intrigued. So I went into his profiles. I was still able to look. But I couldn't contact him unless I paid for another subscription right. to this service. And so I did like the pictures. I liked what I saw. And I liked what I was reading. But there was no mention of a wife or an ex-wife or whatever. So I had to pay, I think the fee was something like $35. So I paid the $35. My first words were to him, I want you to think you're something special because I had to pay $35 just to email you. <laughs> So we started emailing, and um, I had a trip back to California. My, I had an uncle pass away, and so I went back there briefly. And then when I got back is when we met, and we agreed to meet at Starbucks. And within the first 20 minutes, I would say, he was telling me about his wife. And it was the saddest thing I'd ever seen. His whole demeanor changed. He was happy and carefree and excited at this meeting, and then he just, his face changed. Mm-hmm. And the pain on his face was almost unbearable to watch. And I'm a nurse, and I don't mean just because I have RN after my name. That's just who I am. Mm-hmm. I'm a caretaker. I'm a comforter. That's what I do. And so, of course, I reached out, comforted him through my own tears. But it was just so heartbreaking to see how sad he was, and understandably so. His wife was taken away from him as much young of an age, early onset Alzheimer's. You right. don't, I'd never even heard of early onset Alzheimer's until that point. Mm-hmm. So it was just heartbreaking. And so I knew at that point, regardless of 
what our relationship would be, that I wanted to be a support system for him in some way, as a friend, as a girlfriend, whatever that was. And it was in that meeting that he also said that it was his children who encouraged him to find a partner because they had all said goodbye to Gay a long time ago when she was still somewhat, in quotes, here. Mm -hmm. Um, Because physical body was here, but at this point... And for at least a year before this point, Gay was, she didn't know anybody anymore. Mm -hmm. And when that started happening is when his daughter was trying to get him to move on. He just didn't feel ready. Mm -hmm. When he did feel ready is when he finally let her, she actually set up his online profile. His daughter. Yes, his daughter. Uh (laughs) That's cute. Yeah, yeah. And, And she's so supportive. She was such a wonderful, wonderful supportive daughter and friend to him for such mm-hmm. a long, long time. Mm-hmm. So he's so blessed to have her in his life. But she loved her mother very much. And so she wouldn't have done this if she thought her mother would be against it. She, she loved and protected her mother. So I know that in Melanie's heart of hearts, she knew it was the right thing. But Eric wasn't ready. He gave it almost another year. And finally, he decided, you know, let's do it. So that's when they set up the profile. And that's when we met. Mm. It was a few years, just to make it clear to everyone that it wasn't like right after she went into the Alzheimer's unit. It was a few years no. later. Yeah. Right. right. You you weren't the stereotypical scheming other woman. I found this just so oh. so moving. You asked about gay and their love. And, and yet it was interesting that your son, Mark, initially thought he was a cold fish. <laughs> he didn't think that you were, <laughs> that Eric was right for you because he was a right winger. Um, but then soon after your son, Mark, met Eric, Eric wanted to take you to the nursing home to meet his wife. Tell us about that. Um, I wanted to meet her because I knew it was important to him. Mm-hmm. I just was afraid it was going to be too painful to watch the pain on his face. That's what I was afraid of. That was my only hesitation, but mm-hmm. I was gung-ho. I was, okay, let's do this. And so we went and we met her. And like I described in the book, you know, she just wasn't really there. She was in a wheelchair already. And the strange thing with this disease, the moment she went into the nursing home a few years before this, she stopped her period. She ended up breaking her hip. I mean, mm-hmm. it was just one thing after another. So she looked older sitting in that wheelchair than I expected her to look. She was a beautiful blonde woman and had beautiful skin and looked really young. But in that wheelchair, that first time that I saw her, she had already aged quite a bit. And Gosh. Yeah. So I don't know if there was something else going on or if this is typical for early onset. I don't know, but she certainly did not look like what I expected her to look like. But she didn't. If she knew Eric, it was so slight, it was hard to see. Mm -hmm. I thought it was interesting that you wrote, you weren't thinking about what impression the staff might get as a result of your going to the nursing home with Eric. How was that for you? Were you uncomfortable? I know that Eric was crying as he was leaving. Tell us about your feelings around that. Well, when we checked in, you had to sign in at the front desk. Uh-huh. And when I, when we came in, I certainly got looked up and down a few times by a couple of people. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, after we visited with her and we left, you know, people were still watching us. And that was probably the worst moment of ever going into the nursing home with him. Because after that, I think they realized that I was, I was not what they thought I was. That I was more of a support than just this floozy who wanted to take this man from this woman. You know, mm-hmm. I, I think that their first judgment of me, which lasted quite a while, mm-hmm. was exactly that, that I was just this woman who was going to take him away from her 
and never let him visit her and try and get him to divorce because I think that that might be what people think of that situation, mm-hmm. which is part of the reason why I wrote the book is because I want to change that mindset because people are having to hide their relationships because of just that thing, because of the judgment they get. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I thought it was interesting, too, that you really kind of came onto the scene at a point where Eric had been visiting Gay, his still wife, quite a bit. And then he started visiting her less often. And yet you wanted to visit her to confirm that she was still getting care, which I found very moving. What did you get out of those visits that might surprise people? Um, I had a lot of love for Gay, even though I never knew who she really was. She is the reason I had her grown children and her grandchildren to love. And how could I not love the woman who gave birth to this family, who made a family with a man who I was falling in love with, and he loved so deeply? How could I not love her? And Eric did stop visiting her so much. And the main reason for that is it was just too painful. Mm -hmm. And if I was going to do it, and he knew that she was going to be taken care of, it gave him one less thing to worry about. You know, he still visited her. He just wasn't alone all the time, so he didn't go down there every weekend. So, you know, it was more like uh, in the beginning, probably instead of every weekend, it was probably twice a month and then um, even less than that. But he wasn't the only one. You know, the kids, you know, her own grown children and sister and mother and, you know, in-laws, no one was visiting her at that point. Yeah. I, I don't want to say they never did. They just right. didn't very often. Because like I said earlier, they said goodbye to her. Uh And Melanie said, she told me this when we had a a scare right after. It wasn't too long after I'd met Eric. We had a scare that she she might pass away. Melanie said, I said goodbye to my mother a long time ago. Hmm. And I'm ready for her to go. And I told her, Mom, you can go. Because she hated seeing her mother trapped in that body. Oh, sure. Yeah. So, Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's tough. You know, everybody grieves in their own way and everybody lets go in their own way. And, you know, my position is far be it for me to judge. So it's it's uh, very touching that you took that approach. I wonder if you could talk about some of the legal issues that you hadn't really thought about with Gay still being alive. You were building a new house and we wrote about this in the book. I thought this was real interesting. Yeah, um, it was actually, I was an ER nurse at the time and it was actually one of the doctors that pointed out to me because he overheard me sharing pictures with a girlfriend of mine, a colleague of our new house. Um, the, the house that I met Eric in was he called it Gay's house. She fell in love with it when they were over here mm-hmm. um, in Germany. She fell in love with it. She wanted it. He had some reservations, but she just absolutely loved the house. And it was adorable. It was such a nice house. But Eric felt like he needed to let go of that house and leave it as Gay's and get his own home. And that's what we did. So as we're doing this, um, and like I said, the doctor overhears it. He's like, you know, Tammy, you need to look into this because I was putting my money into this house. Mm-hmm. And he said, if Eric dies while Gay is still living, I think the state is, because the state was help funding her nursing home. Right. Um, and said, I think the state is going to take that house and everything in it. And you're out yeah. because my name couldn't be on the mortgage because we weren't married. He was married to gay. Mm-hmm. And I wouldn't have even asked him to divorce her so that my name could be on the house because that, that never occurred to me that, this is yeah. how it was, but the legality of it didn't even, I didn't think about it, mm-hmm. but in, in researching that further with an attorney, 
he said, if that were to happen, you need to get all the stuff you can out of that house before that house is locked up. Uh-huh. So it, it made me worry, yeah. you know, about you know, other things that if there were family members that came out of the woodwork that wanted this or that or whatever, and you know, and it belonged to me or whatever. So there was a lot to it that, you know, yeah, we had moved on in, in one aspect, but we couldn't completely move on. Mm-hmm. So how did that resolve itself? Well, Eric uh, didn't die. <laughs> I mean, but as you were building the house, your name wasn't on the title. Uh, and this is a house yeah. in Colorado, we should make clear, right? Right. <laughs> okay. Right. They were both in Colorado. Yeah. They're... Fortunately, you didn't have to worry about Eric dying. Well, he has type 1 diabetes, right? And you, you brought that up in the book where when you met him, you found this out shortly thereafter. And in fact, his kids, especially Rick's and Melanie, were happy that the two of you met because he was kind of on a path of destruction before that, Eric, right? Right. He wasn't taking care of his diabetes. He wasn't even checking his blood sugar. Good thing he met yeah. a nurse. <laughs> yeah yeah i think that he just you know had a reason to is what i because yeah. he was he disagrees with his his daughter and his son but they saw the behavior they saw him getting on a motorcycle after drinking too much in a bar and not right. taking care of his diabetes and you know so they saw it he just he doesn't want to think that that happened but and right. what eric did do for me in case that were to happen is he put me on his life insurance policy so that i would get some of my money back and not be like left with nothing. Mm-hmm. So he, that is something that he did do. Okay. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the change in Eric's grandchildren towards you and, and the family in general. I know this must have been very, diff- I know it was because I read about it. This was difficult for you. <laughs> kind of being very yeah. respectful with the relationships, but also feeling the pain of some ostracism. Yes. Um, everyone in the family, in the beginning, his daughter completely and her family, who were closest to Eric during this whole time, because she lived in Pueblo, which is about 40 minutes south of where her dad lived, mm-hmm. about an hour south of where her dad lived. So she was in this all the time. And she said, before I came into the picture, he called her four or five times a day. So she was his support person for a very long time. So they saw the change in him when I came into his life. Mm -hmm. And I think what helped her and her brother Rick's and his family and her extended family was they saw that I kept gay alive in their home, in our home. I Mm -hmm. took her picture at Christmas. I made sure that her stances were displayed. You know, I just, I wanted everyone to feel gay and not to forget about her. That wasn't my purpose ever. And I want to add that Gay's mother was very supportive. She stayed with us. We stayed with her mm-hmm. during this time. So mm-hmm. she was very supportive of this, very, very kind to me, um, and her sister as well. And so there was a family member who grew up very uh, Christian and thought that her grandfather was doing something wrong. Mm-hmm. And I understood it, and I support her beliefs, and, and I was proud of how she was firm in her beliefs. But it hurt because it put a wedge in Christmas one year. And it was just, it was a difficult, painful time. But I understood it, and it just had to be what it had to be. Now, when we were together, everything was great. She loved me. You know, it's Hmm. just, I think when she would start thinking about her grandmother, it just was so painful for her that she just tried to and wanted to keep a distance. And like I said, I understood it. I, I totally did. I remember reading about that. You said Christmas just didn't seem to be Christmas. At one point, you were uncomfortable because some of the people who meant the most to you didn't approve of you in the situation. 
Um, yeah. I mean, and that seems that seems very reasonable. So how did, how, did, how did you cope with all that? I mean, that's how the book came about. I had to journal. I had to do something mm-hmm. to get rid mm-hmm. of the pain and the negativity, the negative feelings, all of that. The, the, the energy was just so negative and so bad. It was draining. I never fancied myself as a writer, but the journaling, it just came. And it really did kind of wash things away. And, and when Gay had passed away and I was reading through that journal and reliving all the pain, I thought, you know, I wonder if this could be a book and could show people what the support person can be besides just the other woman. And that's how that started going. But that's how I coped that. And I leaned on friends a lot. And it's difficult to lean on your friends when they're nurses, because uh-huh. we all know that nurses fall for men who need nurses. <laughs> so Is that true? (laughs) I know that you wrote that. I thought this was really touching. You wrote, I knew that my connection to him was not only that of a woman with feelings for a man, but also that of a nurse consoling a patient. I also recognize that I'm a person who needs this in my everyday life, not just at work, but in my personal life as well. I thought that was incredibly self-aware. I don't know many people that would know that about themselves and be willing to write that. So kudos to you. Well, thank you. I I think that in the time leading up to and after leaving my first husband, that's when I became more self-aware because I was trying to figure out who I was. Because mm-hmm. I'm like, this marriage that everybody thinks is so perfect is not so perfect if I'm this sad. So that's when I started doing a lot of soul searching and I call myself spiritual. So I started tapping into a spirituality and, and just trying to figure out who I was. And I was a nurse my entire life. I just, like I said earlier, RN doesn't make me a nurse. I just who I am. And so I did know that. I did know that that was part of it. Mm -hmm. It goes much deeper. I would have run the other way (laughs) from the beginning. It was a difficult, difficult position to be in. But so, yeah, you know, I call a spade a spade. I knew that that was part of it. And every day of my life, you know, when I'm around people, it's just, part of that's just who I am and I embrace it and it gives me energy it gives me an energy that I can't get from anywhere else Mm -hmm. you also wrote in an email you wrote this really beautiful long email to Eric's son Rick's and Mm -hmm. in that you wrote I fell in love with a man who is still in love with his first wife can you imagine how difficult that is in itself to play devil's advocate here how would you respond to someone listening to this who would say well you chose it you could have walked away. I probably would say that's why I didn't walk away. I was in love with him. I loved what I saw. I loved the love he had for his wife. Mm-hmm. It's what I set out to find when I left my first husband, and I found it. Mm-hmm. And I knew that that love would be for me. And it was, even before Gay had passed away. He still had that love for her, but he had some for me as well. And I knew that's what I was looking for. And it was, I didn't have to look very far to see that. And it was right in front of me. That's why I chose to be there. Mm -hmm. And yet, in a way, you were kind of in a relationship with her, too. So you were really in in a deep relationship with both of them, which is hard to describe unless you read this book. It occurred to me at a certain point that you really were in a relationship with both of them. I wonder if you could talk about the beginning of the end a little bit and making final arrangements, if you could... Take us through what you remember about the beginning of the end Uh, for Gay. She had started declining. I saw that she was losing weight, and Eric didn't think she was. And so we pulled her 
chart and I was right. She had lost something like 13, 16 pounds within a few months. And so we wanted to, to speak to her care providers and they said that they were going to call a meeting. So they called a meeting and then that's when he was faced with, you know, she's not eating. Do you want to do an NG tube? You know, that's a tube through your nose into your stomach to feed her. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so I was sitting there with him during this meeting explaining to him the medical terms. And then when we started driving home, he's asking me, should we do that? I'm like, you know what? This is not my decision. This is what you talk to your kids about. So that was the beginning. And she just started rapidly declining after that. And um, then she was only taking liquids. And then she wasn't even taking liquids. Um, We had a little bit of a scare. They said, okay, so now she's got an infection. Do you want antibiotics? So he again went to his children to see if they wanted antibiotics. And nobody wanted to prolong her life. Everybody wanted, Mm -hmm. let's just get her out of this body. So then she started rapidly declining. And I was there quite often towards the end because I just did not, I was in fear that she would die alone. And Mm -hmm. that's not what I wanted for her. And neither did Eric. So she made it through a weekend where we didn't think she was going to make it through the weekend. But Monday morning, I'm at work and I get the phone call that she's going to pass away. And uh, Eric had called me. So we meet down there. So I get there ahead of him, and she looked to be 100 years old. She's oh, my gosh. Almost unrecognizable. If that name was not on the door, I would not have guessed it was her. Hmm. And I had just seen her two days before that. So I sat down beside her, and I was holding her hand and telling her it was okay. You know, it's okay. You can go. You can go. But, you know, Eric's on his way, He's gonna, and she stopped breathing. And there was a clergy, some kind of a clergy person in the room, and she said, I'll go get the nurse. And I said, Gay, you cannot go yet. Eric's going to be here any minute. You have to wait. You have to wait. And then Eric came, and she started breathing. And Eric came to the door, and I ran to the door because I knew he was going to be mortified when he saw what she looked like because he hadn't seen her in maybe four or five days. Uh And I met him at the door, and I said, do not remember her this way. And he goes, are we sure? And I said, yes, she's going. And so he came and he sat down and he looked up at me horrified. He, mm-hmm. he just couldn't believe what he was looking at. Mm-hmm. And so he held mm-hmm. her hand and he told her it was okay and he stroked her hair. And she stopped breathing and she was gone. And it was beautiful. I thought it was beautiful because he was there with her and he told her it was okay. And he told her how much he loved her and she was gone. And afterwards... The, the clergy person said to me, in all the years I've done this, I've never seen that happen before. And I thought in hospice, I'm sure they see things like that a lot. I think this does happen. I don't yeah. think this is extraordinary. Because I think, I think we hear more than we think we hear at the end. Mm-hmm. At least I hope we do. Yeah. To me, she waited. Yeah. She waited for him. Yeah, so, I believe anyway. in that too. I, I mean, we don't really know what that... We per- yeah, we don't really know. Yeah. We don't, you know, and that's why I said in the book, you know, I hope that, you know, when I die and go to wherever it is that we go, that she's there holding a bouquet of bleeding hearts for me. She passed while you were there and Eric was there. She died. We should say for listeners that uh, Gay was diagnosed at 49 and she died at age 56, as you wrote in the book. Lots of decisions had been made before she even passed away. So talk about the benefits of preparation and the difficulty of sharing Eric with lots of people at the time of the funeral. Yeah, we we had a memorial at the house, and we had pictures and flowers, and 
it was set up just beautifully and different people brought different food and people were coming and going. It was kind of an open house kind of thing. Um, and her mom didn't come down, but Eric's family was all there. Mm-hmm. And, and this was in the U.S., they, in, in Idaho Falls, right? Yeah, they did live in Idaho Falls. So that's, we did the um, burial up there, her cremains. We took her cremains up there, and, and we did like a graveside service there for the rest of the family out there. So, mm-hmm. um, But Eric's family was all there in Colorado with us, and I felt like an outsider. You know, I, and Let me back up a little bit. Mm-hmm. Right after she died, and you probably remember in the book, sitting in the living room with his daughter, mm-hmm. I felt she needed to be the only one there. And so I was in my bedroom journaling, and Eric came in, what are you doing? You know, and like I said, and, and you've read in the book, you know, I, I just felt like she needed that. And so when I did come back in there, it felt really awkward. And I was right, and Eric was wrong. I should have stayed in the other room. And you know, <laughs> Melanie, being the sweetheart she is, would never say, no, that's not what I wanted. But I understood. I understood that she, it was her mother. You know, she didn't need me to do anything. She didn't need me to say anything. But so they set up the whole thing. All we did was house it in our house. She read a poem that she wrote to her mother, and it was very beautiful. But it was just hard because most of the people who were there, I feel like things like that are for the living. But because a lot of them hadn't mm-hmm. seen Gay, a lot of it was they wanted information about her. Oh, they yeah. wanted to know what happened. So it was really kind of difficult to be in that situation anyway. And it was a hard day. But mm-hmm. it was something I knew was going to come, and I knew it was going to be difficult. But And we got through it. And it, it was okay. <laughs> it yeah. was okay. And then we did the, the graveside. Her brother read a beautiful thing about his sister. And her sister read something. And so it was very, it was a love. And where she's buried is beautiful. It's in mm. Swan Valley. It's, the Grand Tetons are all around. There's wildflowers everywhere. And she loved wildflowers. So it was a perfect place for her. Mm-hmm. And some of her ashes were put into a pond, as I recall, right, where she and Eric used to yeah. go. That was really lovely to read that. Yeah, when we when we drove up, he said he wanted to stop at this rest area, which was closed down, but we kind of hiked back in there and he threw a little vial of him in there because he, she loved it there so much. So mm. I thought that was beautiful. And mm. then and there were bleeding hearts everywhere. That was perfect because I just pulled up a whole bunch of flowers, made mm-hmm. her a beautiful bouquet, and we brought those to the to the graveside, so that was perfect. Mm-hmm. Explain the title a little bit more. You're just alluding to it. Yeah, here. I first started writing the book. I thought, gosh, I don't know what, what to call this book. And somehow in conversation, Eric brought up how gay loved Bleeding Hearts. And I said, oh, my gosh, that's the perfect title. And he said, Bleeding Hearts? I'm like, yes, everybody's heart is broken. Of course, that's a metaphor. Mm. And it just felt so right. And I wanted to explain a little bit, too, when I started writing this book, I thought, I don't know what I'm doing. So I wrote the first four or five chapters. <laughs> I found this woman online who is an editor. Um, she's a several-time published author, very successful Canadian, and she has a website called Getting You Published. <laughs> and so I sent her an, an email, and I said, can I pay you a fee and have you look at this, and you can tell me if I'm wasting my time. <laughs> and she tells me back, and she says, I'll get back to you in two weeks. This is my fee. And I'm like, okay. So I send it. Two days later, she emails me back and she says, I cannot wait to turn the next page. You're a storyteller. I'm not going to charge you for reading this. Finish the book and I will edit myself. And I was like, okay. Great. So, yeah, it's very well I written. Thought, oh, well, thank you. It's very well edited by her, I'm sure. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> well, all of writing is editing, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. But my goal for the book is so that people don't have to be in shame. 
small world. Her father-in-law, my editor's father-in-law, her mother-in-law was in the nursing home with Alzheimer's as well. And he had a girlfriend that he had to hide all the time because they were being judged and people were saying things and talking behind their back. And she said, so I believe in this book. So I thought there have got to be so many people out there who are facing the same judgment. So it's kind of like a, it's, it's a book that says it's okay, but more important to me is it's okay to do whatever you need to do to get you through grief as long as you're not hurting anybody. That's just how I feel. I follow children who have um, horrible cancers that, that kill, they, they die from, and I, I try to comfort their parents as best I can and, and try to give support and whatever. And people are so vile and nasty and judgmental at how they grieve. Mm. It doesn't matter how they grieve. People need to grieve, like you said earlier, the way they need to grieve, without judgment. Mm -hmm. If Eric felt like he needed to move on, then he shouldn't have been worried. And to tell you the truth, he didn't worry. But no one should have to worry about, am I doing the right thing? You need to do what's right for you. And the judgment needs to stop. It's just so bad. I mean... It wasn't too long ago where that little boy was in that wildlife park and he got eaten by a crocodile or an alligator or something. Mm. And people jumped on those parents. Yeah. These people watched a horrific thing in their life. You just don't know unless you're there and anything can happen. And I don't know. It feels like it's just getting worse. But I think it's because we have social media. But, you know, it's just people are so nasty to each other. It's like, until you've walked in those shoes, you really don't know. You don't know how you'd react. That's and I'm right. not saying everybody needs to find a partner in this situation. Only if you need to. Now, Tammy, you got married. You and Eric, you decided to get married, and you waited. You decided to get married, though, three years to the day after you first met. Um, and you, you made a point of getting through the burial before announcing anything to the family. And this was all handled very graciously, from what I read. Do you live full-time in Germany now? We do right now. Um, okay. We have been here since... 2013, and we will be here till 19. Okay. Eric's a contractor out here, and he does energy stuff and getting things green on the base. And yeah, uh-huh. so we've been here since 13, but we will be going back, like I said, in 19. Looking forward to that because I'm getting grandchildren all of a sudden. Oh, <laughs> a that's, <laughs> that's great. Yeah. Well, if we could talk just for a moment about this, doesn't get talked about a lot the relief that one feels when someone passes after such a difficult struggle. That, too, is judged sometimes, and yet it's perfectly legitimate. There was a great deal of relief all around after Gay passed. I wonder if you could speak to that for a minute. Yes. You know, it's like when Mel said, I said my goodbye a long time ago to my mother. It just, it puts your mind at ease that you've said goodbye, but you're always on edge waiting for that phone call to say, they're gone, Mm -hmm. so that it can complete the grieving process, I think, because She grieved her mother when she was slipping away and then when she couldn't see her mother anymore. She grieved then, years before she passed away. So the heaviest part of the grieving, I think, went. But the physical body is so much how we recognize who our loved ones are. But Melanie didn't see her after she died. She saw her the Friday before she died, I think it was, Mm -hmm. and... She looked different then, but not like she did, like I said, when she passed away. In the very end, yeah. Yeah, so I think that the sigh of relief is not just for the patient, not just for the person who has the Alzheimer's, but it's also for the family, you know, and and that sounds selfish, but it's not. That person 
I'm physically, mentally here, and I can say, I do not want to lay in a bed like that, making my family suffer that way. Mm-hmm. I would much rather be able to push a little button and say, all right, see ya. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and so that's a whole nother, that's a whole nother um, discussion. But I'm just saying that the torment that the family went through, it, it is a sigh of relief. And I don't think that's disrespectful. I think it's life. It's truth. You are like, okay, now we can finish the grieving process, we can close that chapter, and we can just remember her the way she was and and relive those memories and love that person and move on. Because I think you can't move on until that person is truly passed away. Mm -hmm. And you're now working to establish the Gay L. Reeves Foundation in her memory. Want to tell us a little bit about that? Well, it's slow going, but my thoughts were part of the proceeds of the book would be put into a fund to give the family members support. But in the interim, about a year or so ago, I saw a video of a a man online who had to take his wife to Alzheimer's unit. So I reached out, sent him my book, and he has since emailed me. We've emailed a few times. He loves my book. He quotes from it, but he said, you know, there are a lot of support groups now popping up for family members. Mm -hmm. So I still want to set up a fund in Gay's name to help support the caregivers and the family members of these Alzheimer's victims in any way they need it. So that's coming. You're working on that. I know these things do take time, but it's a a, a really lovely idea. Tammy, I want to give you the opportunity to offer any last thoughts before we close. The thing that comes to mind when people want to discuss my book that are a little bit on the fence of, you know, whether Eric and I did what was right or wrong. Like this one granddaughter that had the issue with us, it mm-hmm. was the marriage vows of till death do us part. Eric never abandoned his wife. He was the husband she needed him to be in the capacity she needed him to be in. He loved her to the end. He never divorced her. He never forgot about her. He made decisions for her. He made sure she was well cared for. And he was beside her the day she took her last breath. So he was there in death. And he never, ever would have parted her in any other way. So when people think those things or say those things to me, that's exactly what I tell them is he was there till death parted them. He was with her every step of the way in the way she needed him. Tammy Reeves is a pediatric and trauma nurse, and she's the author of Bleeding Hearts, a true story of Alzheimer's, family, and the other woman. We'll have a link on the AgeWise website to Tammy's book and to her website, so please be sure to check that out. This is a really wonderful book. It's very honest and very well written. Tammy, thanks so much for being on the show and for writing this wonderful book. I know it will help a lot of people. Thank you very much. My pleasure. That's it for today. Thanks for listening. If you like this show, please tell your friends and subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to check out some of our other episodes. Head on over to agewise.com, that's A-G-E-W-Y-Z, or Z, as my Canadian mother says, and use our search feature to discover some great conversations with guests who talk about issues of specific interest to you. You'll get tips, find links to useful information, and best of all, know you're not alone. The AgeWise podcast is produced and mixed by me, and it's distributed on the nationally syndicated Speak Up Talk Radio Network. I'm Jana Panaritis. See you next time. And remember, every caregiver has a story. I want to hear yours.